Oh, me? <laughs> yes. Oh, hi. My name is Andrea Battle. Can you hear me? It sounds like it's recording. Um, and um, I'm a retired teacher of um, basically U.S. government and constitutional law and um, an activist in um, improvement in this country and every place that I land, <laughs> and that's it. Um, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Michael Boggess. Um, I, I say, I was previously a uh, college professor in university and in Delaware, as well as in Illinois. I um, also work with a history institute in New Jersey that partnered with the Department of Education, dealing with um, basically incorporating Black history into K through 12 schools. Um, recently, I kind of was contracted by the mayor of Wilmington, Delaware, to help promote the Underground Railroad in Delaware um, and kind of highlight some of the highlight spots that were there. And I currently am kind of focusing on social issues and injustices and as well as partnering with a uh, historical documentary with JK um, Industries. Uh, peace and blessings to everyone. Can you hear me clearly? Yes. All right. My name is uh, Ajay Taimba. I'm a Harlem educator, author, and activist. Um, uh, 20, about 23 years ago, I co-founded a middle school in the Bronx, New York called Knowledge and Power Preparatory Academy, or MS215. I've written um, a few books, mostly dealing with um, youth uh, self-development and empowerment and grassroots organizing on the college campus for students who are uh, uh, members of Black student unions, how to protest and organize on the campus. And I'm the founder of Harlem Liberation School, which is a Black political education center in Harlem, New York. Pleased to be here with all of you. All right. Again, thank you each and every one, Andrea, Michael, and Ajay, for sharing with us on this Saturday afternoon. Um, at this time, uh, we are going to, if those of you have not read, this is about critical race theory. And so on today, we are going to attempt to answer some questions and give some definitions. And so, first of all, what is critical race theory? Because there are so many that do not know. We hear a lot of things in the media sometimes, and most recently, last week was Juneteenth, and there are people still asking, what is Juneteenth? But that is another conversation for another day. And if it pops up, it pops up. But what is critical race theory to our panelists on today? Um, feel free, whoever wants to start that off, they can. Because I'm sure everyone has their own uh, definition. Um, 
critical race theory has been around for quite a long time. One of the reasons that people did not know what it was, I think, is because basically it was not taught as a theory in elementary schools, very rarely in high schools, unless it was at maybe an AP class or advanced class, and mostly in college, upperclassmen, and graduate school. It, it, in, in my definition of it is that it was a, it was a look at um, how particularly black people, which can also go with others too, but how black people have been um, looked upon by the criminal justice system and all the systems around it as well. Now it has added social media, but when it was really starting, and I guess Michael probably knows and Ajay probably because of your, your uh, commitments to the area, that it was known by a lot of people, but it was just an analysis of why a black person can stand in a court and a white person can stand in the court with everything being equal and not be treated equally. And it was it was explored and, and, and uh, discussed about why that is. And so it's a lot of the ins and outs of it, but it was mostly taught in upper class in colleges and in graduate school. So I'll leave it to others too add on, because I'm sure you've had other experiences. Uh, Mike, I think, Michael, I think you're muted. Sorry, I, what I was just saying was I was agreeing with Andrea. Basically, everything she said was pretty much correct. I was just adding on that, as she had said, it was first started in the 70s by um, Derek Bell, Kimberly Crenshaw, and a few others. And it was mostly advanced college courses, even law, law courses and graduate courses. And the, the, the main definition basically is how um, how policies and institutions and clauses and statutes uh, understand how racism and how inequality has been perpetuated. And the biggest thing is I would say is, is that it was looking at it as a system, not an individual. So it wasn't CRT wasn't looking at the individual racist person saying, hey, he did racist acts. It was it was how the system focused on black Americans and, as you said, other people at the time period and even to today. Thank you. I mean, I would definitely concur with what uh, you both have said. I would probably add a few little things. Definitely CRT, as they refer to the emergence in the, in the mid, late 70s, because it's coming off the heels of the, uh, the civil rights movement and all Correct. the legislation that comes forward in the civil rights movement, civil rights act, voting rights act, all these different things. And mostly coming from lawyers, civil rights lawyers or uh, law students or legal scholars who are trying to grapple with this question. How is it that after all this movement activity and all this legislation, presumably to eliminate racist barriers, Schools are more segregated than they were before the Brown versus Board decision. Your mic is a little choppy. People are still the victims of labor exploitation or mass imprisonment. In other words, racism has not been eliminated. 
in, in many respects it has expanded. So they're trying to grapple with this question, and uh, uh, critical race theory kind of tries to answer that question. And I think um, it has a few key principles advanced by Derek Bell, as has been mentioned. Um, wrote really a groundbreaking paper, I believe, called um, "Serving Two Masters," and he's kind of breaks down some of the key principles of CRT. One, racism is not biological; it's a social construct man-made that is meant to su that supports the status quo two it is not accidental or incidental it is intentional it's not personal it's systemic and systematic so it does it's not about a, a person says a racist a slur or or this particular school that everywhere you slice the american pie racism is there it is endemic to the country from its beginning to the present, and that racism is permanent. It's not something that just goes away because of a protest movement, like power or civil rights. It is a permanent part of the American sort of infrastructure. Um, and that's yeah, that's why I would stop. Okay, your your mic was just a little bit uh, choppy, but uh, for the most part, we did hear. And so, as everyone said, this is this didn't just start yesterday. This conversation. Now, how did this uh, remain hidden from 1970, and now all of a sudden it's everywhere? Everybody wants to uh, talk about it. Well, the big thing is is that as critical race theory as a as a whole is is, is very particular, and only a certain selected number of people who had certain type of law classes took it and upper graduates. So the thing, what's going on now in America is a totally different um, CR, like CRT is being bunched together for everything else. Like CRT is a advanced college course. So it's not being taught in K through 12 schools. And that's, but what, what's happening is, is that you have a lot of people on different political sides who are against basically the idea of inclusion, diversity, and learning about other things in America besides the typical things that you and I and everybody else has learned for um, about the greatness of America. Um, and what they do is they're throwing in all types of different boogeyman tactics and added CRT has been added to that concept. Um, you and I, we all advanced lawyer classes are not being taught on the K through 12 level. But it's just that that word CRT was just been added to get people riled up. Um, I would say just like for political and voting purposes to get people to make different changes after the last election and in 2016. I was um, looking. You know, thinking about this, and, and I've been retired for a while, and mostly what I'm doing is uh, work in Amherst, Massachusetts, um, trying to explain to liberals how their liberal whatever is not as liberal as they think it is in a nice way. Um, <clears throat> but I was going back through some of my stuff, um, and um, this uh, book, The Color of Law, um, and this is by Richard Rothstein, um, and he wrote a very extensive study of how a lot of it started with the, the United States government and has spread. That's why it is so systemic. It's, it didn't start with a bunch of 
rednecks getting mad and what, no. This was systematically the 13th Amendment, which was supposed, everybody says abolish slavery, but it was more than that. The 13th Amendment actually says that you will not treat people who were slaves differently because now they are free and they are citizens, whatever. You know, the whole concept of the 13th Amendment was, you know, was violated by this, but it was instituted constantly by the federal government, basically, both in housing and, I mean, in all aspects. And that is why it is systemic. It's not just a few rednecks running around in a couple of uh, states. This was a system systemic thing that was done and pushed to realtors, pushed to people who had anything to do with schools and, and, and everything. It was set up to maintain the division between black people and the rest of the world. I mean, the, the rest of the United States. It was not accidental and it was not suddenly it came about because a couple of people had issues. It was set up very, and, and it's just interesting to, to read through uh, Rothman, Roth, Rothfield's book and see how, how so much of it was set up a long time ago and it maintains itself because it was done a certain way. The, I mean, to add to that, I would just say that um, the initial framework of the Constitution was inherently, you could say, racist, because you know it it talked it was a system that was set up, but once again there were people of color, black people were not involved. We were considered three fifths rule, as well as even just women, they didn't have the right to vote or they didn't have the right to do. Uh, to, to make decisions. So at the time period, it was specifically designed for a special core group of people who were rich white landowners. Or, um, and if you were poor white person and you were able to get into and gain influence, you could be part of that system. But the women, white women, black, obviously women as a whole, as well as black people or other minorities of the time period were not allowed to be part of that. So that system, even to this day, is still flawed because we were never part of it. And that's what some of the parking with CRT comes with because we're trying, schools are trying to discuss a little bit more inclusion and understand that, hey, it was, life was more than just worrying about George, George Washington and Thomas Jefferson because Thomas Jefferson as a whole fought for freedom and equality, but at the same time period, he had slaves. So you, you can't be the, the, the colonies preach one thing and do the other thing and still expect uh, people to not look at you as, a, um, you know, 200 years later, they're going to look at you and say there was issues. I want, I want to also add, I think it's important to add to the discourse, the community that's often left out of this discussion. And that is, it's not just a civil rights a critique. This is coming part and parcel from the Black Power Movement. This is Black nationalists, Pan-Africanists, who have been raising this for centuries. That America, that America at its core is racist and white supremacist. That's nothing new. And so that's coming from all those college students in the 60s who were protesting, taking over administration buildings, mm -hmm. holding administrators hostage. This is coming from the Black Panther Party, Republican New Africa, Revolutionary Action Movement who are raising these critical issues. These are young people, by the way, 16 to 22 years of age, not older people, who are raising these issues and forcing 
the academicians in many cases to listen to a radical critique because it was they who said liberalism doesn't work. This whole idea of, you know, we're going to be colorblind and we're about race equality. They would say, no, we want what's best for black people. And it may, it may be the case that quote unquote, traditional ideas of being colorblind, having colorblind legislation or, this idea of uh, we want to be equal may fall short because if it, if in fact those ideas were on solid foundation, we wouldn't find ourselves with schools more segregated today than they were then. So, they, so it's very important. We have this discussion to make sure we don't leave out those young people who brought that radical critique that a lot of people didn't want to hear that now is very commonplace. Um, I'm going to say thank you for the young people. I was one of them. I was young once, and <laughs> no, I'm I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to Ghana next week if the FBI and I work together. Um, and I tell them the other day, I don't understand why you all just can't clear me. You've been following my butt since I was 16. But again, I'm I'm 75, and I was one of those people. And trust me. It was an interesting time, um, and we didn't have cameras in, and, and, and cell phones, and so we don't know how much, and that's what I was trying to explain to somebody. Because we didn't have that, we didn't know the amount of uh, things that were going on against our people in different places. If you didn't hear it from somebody or some TV group didn't catch it, you didn't know. But, but you know, and I just didn't understand why I can't clear the FBI in five minutes since they followed me all my life and the CIA when I was out of the country. So I don't think today is going to help you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really care. Um, but what I'm saying is that um, people really were very afraid of us because we were talking the truth and we were talking it to many different other people and we were communicating with universities and colleges and, and, and high schools all over the country. And you're right. Um, they didn't think we were much of a danger until they started getting nervous because we were a danger because people began to listen. So thank you for that, um, you know, intro, because that was true. I was one of those folks and it was, it was, I wasn't running around with flowers. I was running around saying, don't take my people to Vietnam. This is not going to work. And, you know, all those kinds of things. And, 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 you know, you, you do get followed because of it, you know, but I felt, I told my parents, they should feel good. If I die, they'll at least know where I was because the FBI knows, you know, which did not make them feel happy, but you know, <laughs> it was what it was. And, and, and so with that being said, so, you know, I'm actually one of Ms. Dallas students. And, um, <laughs> So one of the things that she did tell us as students, she said, I don't understand what's wrong with you young people today. You don't know what your rights are. And so with that being said, I would like to uh, present the question. So how does this generation, uh, how do we get them to be the radical generation that once was? <laughs> um, I, uh, I, I think with every generation as you, Evol every generation evolves, people become more and more comfortable. Like, for example, if you, your family came from humble beginnings and then you made it out and you're now you're living in the suburbs, that those kids are not feeling the same effect 
of what you went through and that is and generations will be different continue on i think that's the same thing with um civil rights and activism and, and getting the, the 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 power to want to be invested again that is harder nowadays because there's so many different ed, ed, um uh, ways that you can kind of focus on different things compared to in the 60s you had a little bit of television and you know you went outside and then now kids nowadays have social media and so uh, so many other avenues to focus on but as far as getting activated and being an activist um i think one of the biggest things is education in schools i mean that is not necessarily you have to say crt like the high level advanced things but i think inclusion learning about diversity learning about um uh, that you you your life mattered and that you actually had something is very important and then when kids start to see themselves more then they will take a more active interest in their lives compared to seeing not knowing their history and waiting until you're in college or um you know the 12th grade to learn that you had a history so i think getting kids involved in historical understanding at an early age will make them more involved. That's my two cents. And and you can do that by, and you can do that, sorry, you can do that by more than just teaching in the classroom, but you also can do it by promoting like on things like television shows and uh, social media. And there's other ways of getting the knowledge out uh, compared to just a traditional being in the classroom. So you, you can do it like, just for example, growing up in my age, we didn't have a lot of television shows that had black people on there. Example, you had the Cosby's as far as like a live TV, but as far as cartoons and things go, you didn't have that much. We had the Flintstones and the Jetsons. And I learned that in the Flintstones, there were no black people. That's in the past, caveman time. And in the Jetsons, which is the future, there were no black people there either. So it's like, uh, where did I come from? And so things like that is what really does matter. Speaking to Michael's point, I think that's why organizations like mine, Harlem Liberation School, and Liberation Schools are so important. See, again, I'm going to, you know, I'm a Pan-African nationalist, so I'm going to keep pushing that because I think that with all of these identities we have today, which is fine, we have to remember what Black solidarity is about. We have to know that there had to have been gay people in 1960 and 50 and 20 and 10 in the 18th century and the 17th century. We had to know that there were black men who were patriarchal and misogynist going all the way back. The difference is that Harriet Tubman didn't say to the brother, oh, no, brother, you can't come with me. (laughs) The difference is that people in these times were able to forge through those different identities and their the issues they had and still work together. That's something that this the 21st generation of activists and community organizers is going to have to solve the question. How do we entertain these diff- these multiple identities? How do we give people the right and latitude to be mm-hmm. and yet be able to forge some type of base to get things done politically and culturally and economically? You know, that's the thing that I'm seeing is coming up with this, but we need liberation school. We need, in other words, independent entities. In addition to those who want to work through the system, that's fine too. But we need community-based entities that are funded, that are conceived by the indigenous people in the community. 
some of whom may be formal teachers like myself, some of whom may not have any certification as an educator, but they bring artistry, drama, they bring a understanding of politics or political struggle to the community. I think those we have to bring back and popularize this concept of a liberation school and not just for children. I've been on panels and many of our people in our generation are, are naive politically or ignorant of certain things. So the education now has to not just be for little kids, it has to be for adults as well because most of us were miseducated in the school system around these issues of CRT or anything else pertaining to our own uh, survival, development, and liberation. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's um, you know, I just remember in my neighborhood, I grew up in the South Bronx, I'm a Bronx girl. And I remember there were like couples that were originally born to women or two men and they lived together or they, I don't know, married or whatever, however, I, we don't even know because we didn't question that. We just say, oh, that's Miss So-and-so and, and Miss So-and-so and that would be a hi. And no one didn't work with them, sell them things, talk to them, give them respect. It was, it was considered like, that's how they live. And, and you're, you're so right. You know, it's just hard to get across to people today that people grew up with these things and didn't try to discriminate because somebody was with someone of the same sex or whatever. But you're right. And the only way to do it is to see each other. And I hear an echo. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure. I, I live in an area where... The first LGB whatever club started in the Amherst High School in the 1960s, okay? The middle school had two, three counselors, guidance counselors, and one was connected, and one assistant principal, and these were all people of color, by the way, not just black, but black and Latino who started holding prayer meetings, which we've now found out, and refused to use the people's pronouns, the preferred pronouns and all kinds of stuff to these 12 and 13 year olds, okay? And Amherst people are in shock <laughs> because this was one of those people that, um, you know, we were one of those people. I mean, they're all on leave right now while they finish the examination on the middle school level. But this is, people are surprised. And I'm saying people are beginning to listen to the rhetoric that they're getting on television and social media, which is not helpful. And they don't have the right place to go and just unite. And I'm going to let somebody else talk and let me see if I can play with my mic. Um, so, so everyone here is an educator, and um, we we brought up about you know liberation school, and, and so so what is missing from our education system that's that will raise better awareness in our 
communities about what, what's going on. And I mean, there is some racism involved in the education system as well. And um, that's one of the issues because, um, for example, I was in, my parents uh, got the bright idea to send my brother and I to uh, uh, private school for a year. Uh, in, uh, it, was, uh, it was a Catholic school. And so um, we got to the part, I was in seventh grade, we got to the part where slavery was being taught. Mm -hmm. And so during that time, I got an altercation with another kid that was Caucasian. And it, you know, it ended up in the principal office. In retrospect, the whole diocese probably should have been sued. Um, it's probably too late to do it now. I don't know. Maybe you all can tell me. But um, the kid said to me that he wished uh, that it was slavery time so that he could beat me. And so... <laughs> How are people? How is slavery being taught by people that don't necessarily look like the people that uh, it affected the most? Uh, well, <clears throat> that, that goes back to the original conversation we had about just using CRT, where CRT is you know looks at how race or racism is affected through the uh, the in, in, the institutionals and the system and everything but that is also manifested all the way down to the people and so you can change policies but you can't change people's what goes on in their mindset and you can't change generations of a thought overnight like for example as you said the kid said you wish you had slavery so you can beat you again that was taught by his family and his family and so on and so on so to make change you have to start with um I think the best way to make change is actually get to get political action done to make changes in the voting system as far as schools go, the local schools, and who's on the education board. Um, and by doing that, you can make change by the policies that are involved of what is being taught in schools. And I think black people as a whole sometimes we, we vote nationally when it comes to the president, but I think that we don't do a good job as voting locally and um, in your district and by those changes actually affect you a lot more than actually what goes on in the presidency because that's that's nationally and that's like a trickle down but if you vote locally in your local schools on your who's going to be your educator who's going to be your part of the board um, if we can get more involved in the not say PTA but in the education board we can make changes that way and by doing that you can start teaching more of black studies, inclusion, diversity, and understanding of things that will make change over time. I think it's also, I think it's important to remind anyone that's watching this to go backwards so that we, we can go forwards. I don't think sometimes people appreciate what, what Michael kind of just, I think, spoke to a little bit this kind of intergenerational transfer of knowledge, in this case, of backwardness, of ignorance, of arrogance, and of racism. So when you think of it, the people that we see today with the Confederate flags on the truck saying some of the most obnoxious things about black people and the most backwards and idiotic things, those people are the descendants ideologically and in some cases biologically of the people that were separated from the union the confederates it's the same thing 
so that people can conceptualize this. Those are their grand or great grandchildren. Some Southerners have been taught from 1860, whatever, to the present that we should have won that war. That those, you know, those Yankees, those Union people. So this is something that has gone on for generations and generations. This is why the 1960s was seen, and I know Angie will back me up on this, as the second sort of civil uh, civil war. That's why just as Abraham, excuse me, just as uh, Abraham Lincoln was killed as being seen as being too liberal or a so quote unquote nigger lover, John F. Kennedy was killed in similar fashion. There's a lot of parallels. So people need to understand this is not new. You're just, this is what you're seeing today are echoes of the past. The only thing that's new are the particular people uh, and, and some of the, the tactics used. And I think it's important for people to know a lot of what people are saying is CRT isn't even CRT. So that's the, it's a tactic being used. You know, it's like, for instance, do you know that in 25 states, there's legislation right now in the books that you can't, teachers can't teach what's considered critical race theory. Uh, in Texas, the governor said, it's, uh, the law was passed, critical race theory, you cannot do anything, you can't make teachers teach current events or controversial current events, and you can't teach anything that's going to make students of the dominating race, i.e. white folk, feel the pressure of, of being blamed or ashamed for the behavior of their people in the past, right? So book bannings. All of this is part of the four five hundred year conspiracy to silence black resistance, uh, to silence and black and brown and other people their resistance to to sabotage their social political movements and to redirect the conversation to some circular conversation that will lead nowhere. Nobody's teaching people to hate white folk, even though <laughs> some would say. There's a ethical uh, uh, or even moral compunction to do so, not in a cheap way, but I hate what you've done to our people. Not that I hate you, but I hate this system you created where black people think maybe selling drugs, shaking their booty, listening to the most vile uh, lyrics and music is okay. And don't see themselves as thinkers and problem solvers and leaders and artists. So that's what we hate, not the people, but what they've done is redirect the conversation. So now instead of us leading the conversation, we're going back and forth with people who don't even know the, what we're talking about intellectually. They can't even sit down and tell you what critical race theory is, you know? So that's the thing that I think we're, we're charged with knowing what this is, Leading the discussion, that doesn't mean other people can't contribute, but certainly, as Frederick Douglass said, he or she who is wounded should cry out. So the person that's most affected should be in the in the the top leadership, and and we should not allow people to derail or divert the critical questions, because it started from people saying we work to eliminate racism, laws were changed, and racism hasn't been eliminated. What do we do now? Yeah. Oh, okay. I no, no, no. Ladies first. Oh, <laughs> watch that. Anyway, 
That's another story. Okay, another story. <laughs> I'm I'm only kidding. I have a problem with that. Um, I'm I'm right right now teaching a, and I don't know where this echo. I didn't have it at the beginning. Um, does it sound like an echo to the rest of you? It's just me. Maybe it's just me that I can hear. Okay. Um, I teach a course right now. I'm doing it with the a thing called the Sojourner Truth School in the fall called The Stolen Beam, which was written by the Jewish community of Amherst. After dialoguing with a lot of Black people from all over, over a period of maybe two years, it's one of the best things I've ever seen. And it's geared not to Black people, though they're welcome, but geared to white people. People, after the first class, they're in shock because there are things, and these are, you know, I live in Amherst where everybody thinks the only thing silent is the H. That's what they say, because these are a bunch of professors and what have you, so they, you know. And some of these people are in shock. They did not understand a lot of stuff. I mean, it is amazing. And these people are in their 60s, 70s. These are not people who are just came up, you know, whatever. They do not understand the history of anything. Um, we get to talk about the GI Bill and how black soldiers were not allowed to um, put money down from the GI Bill on houses, which created the black gap of wealth. And it, it's it, it just, and again, this was a government thing. And it, it's amazing. I mean, people were like, I didn't know any of that. Of course they don't. And and it's amazing to me. And the first person we read is Ta-Nehisi Coates, and it's a 64-page article. But it really does generate a lot. And there, this is a Jewish community saying, we don't care how you work out reparations, but something needs to be done. Because let me tell you what has happened. And it's still happening. And it, and I mean, I, you know, I'm, I know most of these things and having taken the class and then they asked me to help co-facilitate, I am still shocked at some things I didn't even know because it is systemic. It is created by governments. And let me tell you, state governments are more, if people didn't know there was a problem, seeing what happened in, what was it, Tennessee, where they, they threw those two, um, uh, people out of, of the uh, congressional because right. they spoke up, not because they did anything that anybody had ever been through. But I mean, that shook up a lot of people and a lot of black people because they were like, what? Well, you know, needless to say, they got put back in and they're getting ready to run again. They're going to win probably by a landslide. But that's not the point. The point is they got rid of them for things that they don't get rid of anybody for. And I, I was happy that that happened only because People who have taken the course with us, called, some of them called me and said, you know what, I believed everything, but now it slaps me in the face. There's no way I'm going to miss it in life. And I said, well, keep on spreading the word and telling people this is something that is systemic and it's not going to go away just because we say we're going to be nice. It's got to be changed from all angles. And you're right brother, that we do need to, if we don't have our children in, if we don't have our children in schools that are like that, they need to be in organizations that are. I will add on um, 
basically what my brother I guess say earlier it's not just an attack and you said the second civil war what what I look at it is is what people say is it's cultural wars is what we're fighting now and um starting with Florida with the DeSantis and the banning of books and dealing with not allowing the history of black history at all being taught except for specific things that they want uh slavery and the civil rights movement which you never get a chance to get to by because school's over by that time anyway the other thing is a couple of weeks ago i was watching a, a clip on social media and it was Je- the jeffersons back in the, the jeffersons and it was an episode when the jefferson ran into a clans member and i guess he was thrown off because he thought the guy was supposed to be in robes and stuff and he said the funny thing which hit me said no that was that's the old clan the new clan nowadays, you know, he was wearing, they wear the suits and wore the ties. And there was a movie, Black Klansman, Denzel's son came out like two, three years ago. You know, he was, they were all professionally dressed. It wasn't no longer what you'd think of. But the point is, you, you see television news reports now saying that, speaking of CRT and institutional racism and everything, those people who have negative against negative thoughts against black people are no longer just the ones living in the backwaters they're now wearing they remove their white robes and they have judge robes on they have police uniforms on they are med they're doctors they're lawyers they're judges and they're the ones who make and shape policy they can all, also they're school teachers because there's been a million school teachers been caught over the years saying some really bad things as well as police officers and we, we've seen a million videos about that so the cultural wars is not just education. It, we're, we're being attacked on every front, e- even the um, trying to buy a house. I know you guys seen the article where the, they changed the face and the house was appraised at this and there's praise for black people. So we're being attacked on so many different sides. Um, so the education part is important. It's important for us to understand these things. So you can't just say, oh, racism's dead it's not dead it's just changed shape it's become more under divisive and it's refined compared to 300 years ago where you consider three-fifths of property now we recognize who you are but we're going to find ways to undermine you on different avenues um so that's where i wanted to get back to your your point andrea you said about people in amherst and people learning about these things it's, it's amazing that they're learning, but it's taken so long. And my next step would be is what are they doing with the knowledge they're learning? Because you can learn something, but if they're not preaching that to others or doing anything systemically to change that, that's where we have to get people to change. Because learning about it is great, but if they're not doing anything about it, we're still stuck in the circular cycle that we have been for the last 100 years. Yeah, that's I'm, I'm very active in the League of Women Voters in Amherst now, mm-hmm. um, and we have a racial justice committee, and we are spreading. I mean, a good percentage of the committee are white people who want to make changes in policy and other things as they learn. Um, they they didn't. I mean, people don't know what they just don't know, and you don't know stuff if it doesn't happen to you. I'm sorry, they just. You know, unless they have somebody who they're close to that say they watch things happen, but they don't really know. And, um, you know, hopefully as we go along, uh, because now we have press, which is the community responders, people who go ahead of the police when someone is losing their mind out there and they 
tone the person down so people won't get shot. Mm-hmm. You know, if they had this press program when Eleanor Bumpus was here, and I always think about this woman who had mental issues, who they killed her because she was having issues with the people coming into her space, which is not uncommon when you have mental issues. And they killed her. The police killed her and got away with it. So again, um, yes, we are trying to get people to move and to what, you know, and, and, and I'm, I'm very clear about what we do and how we're showing people that this is what's going on. And the only way to change things is everybody has to work at it. Right. I'm not expecting everybody to work at it, but don't look at me cross-eyed when I talk about you. You know, because that's what's going to happen. I mean, uh, Lamar knows that I left teaching for 10 years and I was in the corporate world before I came back to Uniondale. And um, my last job paid me tremendously well at Dow Jones until I got really tired of very wealthy white men who didn't think anything of anybody that made less than two or three million dollars a year. And it just got to the point where I could not stand it another minute. And teachers looked at me like I had lost my mind. They said, you gave up over $350,000 a year to come back and go into a classroom. I said, do I look miserable? And they said, no, you look extremely exuberant. I said, because I am reaching young black and brown children all over the place and I love every, the last 20 years of my life before I retired were the most wonderful years of teaching Uniondale students than I've ever had. And I never had a regret. My daughter wasn't really happy about that <laughs> because she was a teenager, but I was very happy in what I did because it was the best thing I could have done, but I could also explain to them Watch out in business. This is what you have to look out for. So I knew more than one side of the coin, but reaching so many young people, young women and young men, and really trying to show them how to function in the real world and what they didn't have to do and those kind of things really just made it. And then, of course, the year before I retired, I was nominated and was Long Island Teacher of the Year, which... Really, I said, okay, God, you had to tell me it was okay. Pat you on the back. You, you, made a good mis- you made a good move because then I went up against 10,000 other teachers on Long Island. And Long Island is one step from Alabama, you know, in the 1960s sometimes. Okay. So, you know, again, I do understand. And, 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 and Brother Ajay, I, I think you're absolutely right. We need more schools. And if we don't have schools, we need other institutions to help our children. And, and so let me say that with that being said, so, and I think everyone brought up the culture issue. So um, culture is okay. When, when we're inside of our homes, we think one way. If we're in our community, places of worship, we think one way. But as you all mentioned, when you go into the workforce, it is totally different because you have people in the workforce that feel like, um, well, they don't even know they don't even know where you came from or how you got there, and some of them have a problem with you working at Dow Jones or wherever you're working at because they think a certain way about people, and then conversations come up. They say, "Don't discuss uh, religion." 
of politics at work, but it happens. Don't discuss your salary, but it happens. And we know it happens, and we know that there is a difference between us and between them. And I can think of one time I was having a conversation with somebody, and it's, oh, fighting for reparations again, blah, blah, blah. Well, the Japanese get it, so what about us? And so, you know, the reparations is a whole nother conversation. Why should people get anything, you know? In well, the workplace, how do we navigate through these challenges? Well, well, to be honest, I was really a phenomena there because I had a master's in Chinese studies and I spoke my Chinese was good. And that was just beyond the average white person. And it wasn't because of that, it was because of who I was, that I was a black woman with a, an ability to speak more than one language. You know, it was like, whatever you know so it, it, it's please don't get me started with that. I, I think i think that the, the idea of rep, i mean we can talk the idea of reparations um it's it's a topic that is allowed to be discussed for everybody else except for black people honestly um even in schools if going back to the crt teaching issue you learn about the genocide of the Indians and you learn about how Indians got a check and you heard about the, the Japanese in the forties and they got a check after reparations. Uh, you, you learn even about um, slave math. Well, you don't learn K through 12, but at certain K through 12 schools, you learn about slave masters receive reparations. So every, even Jews in the, during the Holocaust receive reparations. Everybody receives reparations or was able to discuss it even on school level. But when it comes to blacks, the topic is always pushed aside and we're not to talk about it. Just like nowadays, like in Congress and on, you know, on television, reparations is brought up, but it's not, it, it's, it's stalled every time it's passed. And I think that's deliberately done to do that, to not allow the race debate to continue. Because if you talk about reparations, then you have to talk about other types of forms of injustice. And I think that they don't, people don't want to hear that only to an extent. Um, so the, the reparations talk at the coffee table definitely will get silenced a lot easier when it talks about black reparations versus other reparations. One, one of the things I think of a lot is the difference between what black people were talking about and how they framed the vision they had for the future, let's say in the 60s versus now. I'm still waiting to hear somebody say black liberation. Black liberation. I don't hear that. <laughs> I don't hear that today. What I hear is people saying, I want a safe space and I want to be able to, and that's fine, but how you frame something is key. The questions you, it, 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 it adjusts the questions you raise the tactics you use and employ. And I think that, um, that I don't know if this needs to be done at the workplace necessarily, but certainly there need to be study groups. In other words, once you get past the voting, let's put voting to the side. That's what we're taught. That's the, that's what we're taught is the way you're supposed to get change in society. I had to teach it myself as a social studies teacher with a lot of caveats in class. But when you study different societies, including this one, how was America born? Was it through the ballot? 
how did how did uh how was the Soviet Union born? It was to the bullet. Okay. So now people say getting scared. Say, oh, this guy's on the show talking crazy. No, I'm not. What I'm saying is do the do the research. So many beautiful Africans, new Africans, and other people have laid out so many documents of research for you to study. And when you study it, you're gonna see what are the how have black people advanced in this country? Radical scholarship and intellectual discourse, radical journalism, grassroots organizing, and this sort of um, independent, like in other words, mutual aid societies. Now, W.B. Du Bois wrote an entire book where he's outlining all of these different examples of poor, illiterate black people that took their little pennies, their little money, and put it in and bought land and created business and schools and churches on this land. You know, we're on the Global Gospel Show. It's worth noting that the black church is one of our most important institutions in terms of liberation. Regardless of what people think about the, the critiques of the white man, did yes, the white man tried to use it in a nefarious way, but our people wasn't stupid. We heard what he said, but we saw ourselves as those Israelites, well, right? We we Africanized what what we heard, or else there wouldn't have been a Nat Nat Turner, right? So I think it's important that we change the language. Safe spaces, yes. Um, um, equality, equity, possibly. I want to be free. I want my children to be able to go to and fro. Work at a job of their choice without limitation. I want people to be able to exist in a community and see businesses businesses they own, politicians that speak to their needs, and they can travel freely and not get harassed and killed with impunity by the people they pay to protect them. Those questions will never get raised or addressed effectively until we frame what we want as liberation. I want to be free. Now, so that's going to require a different type of education. We need to we need to be teaching little boys and girls not only how to help defend their communities literally, but how to be leaders and problem solvers in their community, entrepreneurs, uh, uh, people who are spokespersons for organizations, people that can create organizations, people that say, uh, "I don't care what a degree I have or don't have." Harriet Tubman didn't have no damn degree in, in 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 liberation, did she? She didn't have a. She probably didn't know how to read a map. All she knew, though, was that God didn't put me here to serve no man. She knew that, and on the basis of that, all the other things worked themselves out. So I think we need to, in my humble opinion, it needs to be it needs to be more radical, and it needs to be more militant. And I want to remind y'all before you get scared, many of our greatest black nationalist pioneers were, guess what? Christian. Come right out the church. Edward Wilmot Blyden, uh, uh, Bishop Henry O'Neill, Marcus Garvey. So there should not be this kind of false dichotomy raised between I'm Christian, but I can't be a black nationalist. I'm black Christian, but I can't believe in self-defense. No. Some of some of our greatest nationalists come right out of the church. 
And it was their spiritual belief. Pardon me. I'm in Harlem and I'm on the first floor. <laughs> so you're going to hear a lot of noise. Pardon me one second. So there's no false dichotomy. We can embrace I'm a black Christian, I'm a black Muslim, black Hebrew. And I can still say I want to see black businesses in my community. I can still say I want to see cooperatively owned businesses. I can still say I want to protect our sisters who are getting accosted and apprehended and sold into uh, human trafficking rings. That doesn't go against being Christian. So that's why I would love to see those type of not only intergenerational, but interdisciplinary sort of conversations happening more in our communities where we bring people together. Because guess what? Those people who are against LGBT, I'm not necessarily in support of it personally, but I know I had an uncle who was gay. Hey, I'm not throwing him away. I'm not throwing Baldwin away. I'm not throwing Langston Hughes away. They're part of the family. So now the question becomes, how do we allow room for these people to, to do the work we need to bring their gifts to the table and to work on behalf of all the people? Because you're not getting rid of these groups. Right. The groups are there to stay. But how do we bring them together to organize for our people, Christian or not? Right. And and so um, you, you made several points and I, it's two oh five and we know that the time is, is really flying. And so I just want to remind everyone that um, we do have a, to leave us a comment if there's a question. Uh, that you have. Leave a comment at the bottom or you can call 619-924-0800. Um, 619-924-0800. If you have a question, just write it at the bottom. We'll try to get to it if we can. And so um, one of the questions that someone just sent to me was, what is the solution? And I think uh, Brother Ajay just mentioned some of the solutions. And also um, there's other groups out there and, and you mentioned some of those other groups, but I think because I've been to a lot of different uh, activist meetings, I think that it's important that we don't let those other subgroups um, become more prominent in our race issue. You know, we, we are talking about critical race theory and we're talking about the black man and black woman in the world. And what I noticed is some of those groups that want to talk about um, gender or sexuality, they try to overshadow the issue of being black. And so my personal opinion is that uh, that is not the same struggle. You know, I understand civil rights and how people define that, but it's not the same struggle as being black man, uh, black woman in America. Or And, then, and I do want to say that also you mentioned uh, about, you know, people that um, lose their lives. And so one of the things that I said is this theory meets mortality. And so people are losing their lives, not because they're activists, but because they're victims of this system. You know, we talk about uh, Sandra Bland and George Floyd and, and, and that's, those are just two names. There's a million names. There's names that we don't even know. There's names that they keep out of the media. And, you know, there's names that we'll never know. And then we all have our personal stories of what has happened to us uh, when it comes to the judicial system or the legal system or what's happened to our family members. And so that's, I just want to know how do we address that when this, this becomes an issue of life or death? What is our, our take on that panel? I gave, I gave one suggestion. I'll be brief. I gave one suggestion, study, 
See, the thing is, our people were so beautiful, our ancestors, man. God bless them. They were so beautiful that they thought to leave monument after monument after monument for us to understand how they did what they did and what the history was. Our modern-day ancestors did the same. Read the boys, Garvey. There's so much work that has been done. There are blueprints that have been developed that we haven't even touched yet. Right? So somebody in the comments said Deacons for, for defense. Yes. In other words, if we're talking about the area of policing and we understand that the police today are the extension of modern day slave patrols. Yes. <laughs> then given the, the slave master more cameras ain't going to solve your problem. Given the slave master, uh, uh, it just doesn't work. That maybe we need to talk as you, as those people work on those issues. We need to have community policing, community policing. The people who know people in the community who have respect of the indigenous people in the community, who can have conversations with people who can prevent certain things. But I know this: where I grew up in Harlem, where I live still in in the neighborhood of my birth. There was a time you were not hitting any elderly woman or man on their head. You were not abducting any little girl or being inappropriate without serious consequence. And that serious consequence is really, if you think about it, is what deters people. Mm -hmm. Right? So if I could go on the highway and drive as fast as I want without consequence, guess what's going to happen? Everybody's going to do a 90. It's, it's, it's the fact that if you get caught, there'll be a price to pay that deters people. Because someone here said, I think Michael may have said earlier, you can't legislate or mandate how people feel about you. But what you can do is create a situation in which people know you better leave that, those girls on that block or in that neighborhood or women over there, you better leave them alone. Because bad things happen to people who go over there and mistreat them. But our community is just very, you know, so that's one thing we could put in place. We have blueprints for that. Community policing. Um, I will, I'll just add on real quick and I'll let Andre take the last few minutes, but I, I'm going to try to do the other perspective and kind of do just like how it's being against us generationally. People have been attacking us generationally. I think that we have to take a generational approach on how to do this. And I think, you know, us here in this panel here, we're older enough. We kind of understand things, obviously. But I think we have to start at the beginning, start at the children, start at the home, start initially in the home with the children. So, for example, in our home, we have books of uh, representation. We have black books of you know, uh, people in our home. So the kids at an early age see people of color. They see black people. They see, you know, scientists. They see lawyers. They see books by black people. So it's you st the conversation starts there. Then it's reinforced by getting black history and black so if issues taught in schools. So generationally, it's continuing to grow. Then from there, as the kids begin to become more active, then you can start having those kids become more um, leading uh, community organization because now they're in a teenager's team and they can become more community activism. And by that time period, they get high school and beyond. They are well prepared for the future. So maybe our current generation, like us and the current kids, we need to look at this at a generational approach. Unfortunately, we're not going to have it immediately tomorrow for the switch. But I think if we go the next 
you know, 25, 20 years of generations, we will be able to make the change. But we have to start in the house, getting representation, let the kids see images of black people, let them understand the importance of black people, let them know that they are important because they're, you know, your black is beautiful, all that. Then just do the generational approach um, because I think it's a lot easier to worry about the future compared to right now because everybody, it's hard to train somebody. Mm-hmm immediately right now i mean we all know that but if you kind of start from the in the beginnings and work your way up i think it's a lot better approach and we just have to take hope and pray the next few generations will catch on and then we will see change well i you know my daughter is the um director of the wbeb du bois center at university of massachusetts here in amherst that's why i'm here is I followed her so I could watch my three grandchildren um, grow up. Um, and um, she's also happens to be an archaeologist. You know, so that also throws a lot of people off because, you know, what can I say? Anyway, um, but I dragged her off to China. So what the heck? When she was four and a half, it had to make her different. But um, but we read we have a Monday breakfast where we read a Du Bois piece or something about Du Bois every week. And we've done our 200th reading uh, last week. And let me tell you something. Stuff he wrote in 1910 sounds like he wrote it last week. Okay. I am looking forward to going to Ghana because that is where he spent his last 20, 25 years. And I'm going to, you know, do my little homage to him. I happen to believe in the church in all forms, I happen to practice an African traditional religion of which started for us in Brooklyn, but um, God is God is God. And the church and, and the religious practices that we gather are some of the best places to get leaders and people who can help to organize, et cetera. I absolutely agree with you. We need to utilize those things. You can raise money in a church in five minutes Try going into any old group and see if you can do it. If it's a good cause and it has meaning, that those people will support you 150%. So again, um, you know, everything that has been said, I, I totally agree with. I'm so honored to be on a panel full of such um, erudite and really brilliant people, including my former student, who I've always been proud of. Um, but... I think we ha- there's hope. We just have to work a lot harder at it. And if I'm looking from the other side, I promise to come and, you know, tell God to look out for y'all. <laughs> and thank you very much. Oh, okay. I, I want to thank you. I want to just read a few comments. Um, Anthony Hernandez um, says, uh, we need strong families. We need strong schools where God's teachings are involved. Uh, Marlon says we need part two and three. So when Miss Battle gets, when Andrea gets back from Ghana, (laughs) we'll we'll do part uh, two. Um, Brenda Hilaire, the very constitution they hold so dear, white supremacists hold so dear, they violate constantly. Um, Margie says change starts within the heart. It reflects a chance to have a godly experience. Indeed, it is personal. During the 70s, it was mandatory for the students to be educated by reading the 
novels written by black activists. Okay, um, Alexis Marrow. Um, okay, uh, okay. So, um, okay. So we're almost at the end. <laughs> so, in conclusion, <laughs> critical race theory. What is it? What do we do about it? How do we change? Um, so I'm going to let everyone give their um, concluding remarks um, for this uh, episode, part one, on critical race theory. And, you know, I think everyone um, did their best to talk about, listen, there's um, a social issue involved in this. There's an economic issue. There's a real estate issue about where we live. And so the whole conversation that um, that was kind of alluded to is that um, desegregation didn't necessarily help us. Um, there were more black businesses. I mean, we didn't even talk about, you know, the black towns or black Wall Street or, or Tulsa or how systemically um, we were wiped out of our economic system when, you know, and our dollar leaves our community. In other communities, it circulates several times before it leaves the community. So that, you know, that's the social aspect. I mean, the economic aspect of it. And also, you know, where we live, okay, gentrification, it's happening, it happened, it's still happening. And so when we live in a brownstone, it isn't worth anything. And I, listen, I went to school in Brooklyn, I know, but a cheap brownstone is $2 million, you know? So this, this is all things that systemically, okay, once we're out of the community, okay, the real estate value goes up. What about when I'm staying there? You know what I'm saying? So, you know, there's real estate issues. You know, there's a lot of issues um, that go back to this theory. But in my personal opinion, it's not a theory. It's our reality. Mm -hmm. This is how we've been living or surviving for a long time. And so, panel... In conclusion, all right, I'll, I'll go first so that so that Michael doesn't have to say ladies first. <laughs> um, it, it has been an honor to be on a panel with um, men who who happen to be very astute at this particular thing, and I'm sure many others. Um, I, I just feel like I'm with um, common brothers of mine because uh, critical race theory, no matter what. DeSantis and people like that do is not going away. It it's an observation, just like uh, Brother Ajay said. It's an observation. We have to learn to observe and 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 take as part of us what it is that we are observing that we want to see continue and 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 foster and grow. Um, and it's going to stay because it's real. It, it doesn't matter the fact that the government is what the one who actually got it underway and 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 continued it, but it's gonna it's not going anywhere. And I don't think people are I don't think our children are 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 gonna be less smart. I just think we need to be smarter about where we direct them. We have to be smarter about where we 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 tell them that they need to be going and, and let them blossom and 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 tell tell the story, but we need to tell them things and we need to make sure that we give as much information 
and and understanding about themselves and how they come from great people through all the generations as not even talking about you know the, the ancient uh things of africa the, the unbelievable um uh things and i'm looking forward to spending some time in ghana i'm going to be working with some special needs children and because i think all children are special so it doesn't matter i'm i'm hoping to help them for their school year next year and that's what i'm going to be doing this summer and um but i think that we have a lot of hope because there are enough of us out here who know the deal and we're just going to keep spreading that word. And so with that, I'll close. Brother Ajay, you can go. Thank you, sir. Um, this is a very complex situation. And it will probably take a few more of these shows and a few books and a few uh, <laughs> classes and movements. I can say this to outline it, though. The Ghanaian proverb, I believe, is it takes a village to raise a child. But it also takes a village to destroy and neglect the child. So one of the things should be to identify the most pivotal components of our village and build them up make our village strong again so that whether or not uh, the mother and father have African-centered knowledge or an African-centered library, it's okay because they're in a village. And when they go to their after-school program that's provided, or when they go to their liberation school that's provided, or when they talk to the local black business owner or the local black community organizer, they get the things that their parents may not have. That's the whole purpose of having a village in the first place, that no no one component is overburdened with doing everything. Um, the second thing I would say is that we have to go back. I think the 60s is one of our most fertile uh, historical eras for what we're going through now. We need study groups again. And those study groups should be in the area of formal party politics, in the area of food production. I think we should start seeing ourselves not as a group, a loosely assembled group of black people that live in America. We should start seeing ourselves as a nation. What does a nation need? Right? And then we start training people in those areas. Not just because I think we messed up when we went for integration, when we were supposed to be going for infiltration. We are supposed to be going to these schools to learn and bring that back to our communities, not to go part and parcel with the system that oppresses us. I think we got that a little twisted. So I would say those things very generally. Now I've written books that get into it more in depth, but I, it's just that's just a, a really large question. That's the way I would address it for now. And really, thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure to, to build with my, my beautiful brothers and sisters right here. Thank you. All right. Um, first and foremost, thank you, uh, Lamar, for having uh, us on this panel. I really do appreciate it. Um, I, I think that stuff like this is necessarily needed on a regular basis. I mean, conversations about Black people, Black liberation, um, Black equality, and Black improvement, it, it's something that needs to be talked about just as much as anything else, honestly, until we are, I don't say free, but until we have gained, uh, you know, the upper hand, it, it's we need to talk about every day. Um, I will say this. 
once again, CR, you know, the idea of CRT, once again, it came out right after the civil rights movement pretty much was formed. And a lot of people thought and they saw that black people were affected more than just the political laws that were done or the laws. They were affected uh, socially and economically. And that's one of the reasons why they came up with the theory for the critical race theory. Um, having going back to the education system, they did a study a year ago saying that 35% of all um, K through 12 schools have restrictive or no access to CRT or any type of black history throughout the country, which were, and they were all impacted by local laws and politicians. So 35% of all the population out there. Um, what this does is this kind of leads to like many, like let many educators, teachers, be afraid to discuss issues around race or racism or promote the concept about, you know, diversity, inclusion, and talk about black history. So you're not even, kids are not even getting what we learned because they're afraid to, because actually I think in certain ports like Florida, you can actually be, it's a federal charges. Like you can actually get federal charges as a teacher. If you discuss certain um, critical race or black studies, if information, um, I, I think, and I'll be quiet about this, but I, I think that this anti-CRT, anti-Black studies information started to come back around the year 2016 uh, in that political process. We all know what happened in 2016 as far as political goes, but how the world changed and America changed or became to show its face again in 2016. Um, what we're seeing now since 2016 has been a consistent effort to um, not only whitewash history but limit the limit the the limit the amount of correct history being taught you can only learn so much and what i think is happening is is that the dominant society is trying to maintain this fictional scope of how america was built through the greatness of a few limited people and actually remove any type of ism racism sexism culturism imperialism all that stuff is being removed and they want to keep that maintain that special way of how george washington is a great leader and that's all we learn about my kids is young my kids is only less than 10 years old and they i hear about this constantly they come in when they tell me about george washington throwing a quarter across the potomac i was like dude you've been there you know no one can make that throw not even daddy but that's a whole other thing but um so what leads to a population of continued never learning your history. So when I try to express stuff to them, because there's so many different avenues nowadays, a lot of people don't learn a lot because there's just so many different avenues and there's a lot of hate information out there. And so we have to make changes. Um, I think we have to do a better effort on learning, learning our history, as I said, starting foundationally, starting generationally, starting in the home and have schools kind of like, my brother in the Bronx does. So I do appreciate everybody on the panel for what you're doing and what you're doing. Um, I just wish that we can continue this on a regular basis, not just the discussions, but action. So thank you so much. Again, um, thank you. I just wanted to say, I was just looking at the uh, Monday Du Bois reading that was written in 1960 by W.B. Du Bois. And it was like um, the wrongs which suppress our rights. It was June 15th, 1960. And when we finish, it, it's going to be like 
did he write this last week? <laughs> you know, because that's what we say every, you know, because it's amazing the, you know, what he does, what he did. And um, unbelievable. Anyway. The biggest issue of the 20th century was the problem of the color line. So obviously we're in the 21st century and we're still dealing with the color line. And the boy said in 1907, 1908, I think it was. So we never addressed the problem. So I, I our great grandchildren will probably be having the same discussion if we don't make change. That's all I will say. Mm. That's uh, scary. Thank you. Again, again, thank you, everyone. Um, thank you, all those com that commented. Thank you. Uh, Sheila Bush says thank you. Um, again, listen, I will respond to the comments at a later time. But again, thank you, everyone. And uh, I just want to thank our panelists on today. Um, thank you for all the work that you do in the community and worldwide and, and educating others and uh, keeping us informed and empowered. Uh, thank, uh, thank you to my technician, Ryan Wilson. So he made all your pictures look great on, on that posting. So if you, if you need a little help, contact Ryan Wilson. Again, <laughs> um, thank you, panelists. I, I just wanted everybody, um, just tell us your, um, the listening uh, audience, your contact information, because I know that you're available. Uh, if they can't come to you, certainly you can come to them. We know you can make that happen. So just um, give your contact information, how uh, they can reach out to you. And listen, I know that you all have done, they're all very modest about <laughs> the work that they, they do, uh, but they ha all have extensive resumes. And uh, so we need to hear more from you. Uh, tell our listening audience how they can do that. Your email address, your uh, phone number, etc., whatever website uh, where they can purchase your book, etc. I'll start with mine because I have a simple just one. If you ever want to reach out to me, you can reach out to me at um, full f u l l circle sixteen nineteen. So full circle sixteen nineteen at gmail dot com. That you can reach out to me there. Um, you can type in my, my first and last name in Amazon and get, um, my different books. I think the easiest way is go to Linktree. And, um, that's Linktree Harlem Liberation School. That has everything. I will do that. Um, brother Ajay, but I would, but I, but I think what I'm going to do is because I never buy books from Amazon anymore. I do other things, but I buy books. I buy books from independent bookstores, especially black-owned, and um, um, you know my brothers and sisters. So um, I will look, but I'll look you up there because that that'll be good. Um, my name Andrea Battle in lowercase eighty eight at gmail is fine and um my phone number is easier you know because if you're on whatsapp <laughs> put a one in front of it if you need to talk to me in the next six weeks or so it's uh, <laughs> 516-749-5056 so um that definitely um i will be looking at whatsapp because i don't know how much we'll be able to do otherwise i think i will have a uh, a thing, but Andrea Battle eighty eight at Gmail. I will get also. So, so again, 
Um, thank you, everyone. I think uh, we got to again. Thank you, Connie Hernandez. Uh, okay. Um, so uh, again, thank you. Uh, we're going to put all that uh, information uh, at the. We're going to post all your uh, email addresses yeah. at a later time. And again, we want everybody to go back and listen, like, and share. Um, we pray God's blessings on each and every one of you that you have uh, safe travels and certainly all your endeavors uh, are great and uh, awesome. And certainly uh, we know that when you come back uh, next time, whenever uh, we uh, get this together again, uh, that certainly there will be more information to share. And certainly we hope that we've answered a few questions today on critical race theory and um me personally, I, I think we've gone beyond theory, it's reality. That's my personal opinion. It might've started out as that, but certainly it is. Before it became a question in the classroom of theory, it, it was our reality. People lived in and because of what is systemic. So and thank you to our panelists. God bless you all. Oh, wait. We have something. Somebody saying something? No. Okay. All right. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.